Welcome to the debut episode of ContraZoom, a podcast where we'll be looking at film from both an academic perspective, but also try to have some fun with it as well. The film as a medium is both new and old. The act of filming moving pictures got started in the 1880s, which is around 140 years ago. As far as art goes, that doesn't sound like a lot of time, but that is the entirety of the modern world. Everything from cars to phonographs to television to the internet all became mainstream in this time period. The constant variable has always been a world where people want to be entertained and have something to think about. Movies and film has filled this void. We laugh, we cry, we have our beliefs challenged, our views reinforced, and with each passing day, there are still new ways to capture stories. From the early days of Georges Méliès and the Lumière brothers making up the industry on the fly to the creation of Hollywood and making small, shy men like Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton silent behemoths on giant screens. Then came the star system where women want to look like Greta Garbo and Betty, Betty Davis and men learned that what it meant to be masculine by watching Clark Gable and Humphrey Bogart. Directors eventually took center stage when... People like Alfred Hitchcock and Eli Kazan became bigger draws than the stars themselves. Once color was introduced, people were blown away by the power that The Wizard of Oz had and the impact viewers felt by seeing those ruby red slippers for the first time. Eventually, digital cameras superseded film cameras in the 90s, allowing newer, easier ways to film with quicker turnaround times for post-production. While the systems and methods of making films changed drastically, there's nothing like sitting down in the dark watching a story unfold in front of your eyes over the course of 120 minutes. While this is primarily a film-based podcast, eventually we'll dabble with television and theater too, as we're more concerned discussing the ability to tell stories. For our first big project, we've decided to watch all the Academy Award-winning Best Picture films. The Oscars started in 1927, and taking 10 films at a time, we will break down and rank them all. From Wings to Birdman... We want you to join us on this adventure. We hope that if you haven't seen some of the films, you'll find the, discuss the discussion interesting and give you ideas what to watch next, and if you have seen some of the films, to hopefully learn something new about them. We're going to try to do our Oscar podcast semi-regularly, as it does take a bit of time for us to do all the homework for some episodes. In between Oscar episodes, we will have interesting features, interviews from artists and experts alike, and guest contributors. Joining me on this journey will be Andreas Babiolakis. You may know him as the co-host of Live in Limbo's main podcast, Capsule, a show I frequently guest on myself, and he is also the editor of our burgeoning film section. Andreas, if you wouldn't mind telling us a bit more about your film background and afterwards list your three personal favorite films so our listeners can get a bit get to know you a bit better. Well, first of all, I just want to say well done with that opening. I mean, this is a first time I'm hearing it. And as a fellow film student, there aren't many words that bring such an academic nostalgia to my ears, such as hearing the Lumiere brothers or about Technicolor hitting the screen for the first time. It's something that really made me decide why I wanted to choose film. I mean, I've had a big background in many things, art, theater, 
um, music. But I stuck with film when I got to university, which I studied cinema studies at York University, actually. And I graduated with honors. Um, And film for me is an outlet. It's informative. It's an expansion of your mind. And as all of the boxes, it's just so many things and more. It's impossible to really pin down with all of this history and just all of these minds that have really taken us for a ride. I couldn't be more honored to be your co-host on this podcast. And this is something I've really wanted the site to experience. Um, so yes, I studied again at York University. What about you? How did you um, come about your discovery of film and its academic side? Uh, well, I've always been interested primarily from the acting side. I grew up taking theater classes and I went to the arts high school, Tobago School of the Arts, where I studied drama. And from there I went to Humber and I took their acting for film and television where I had my diploma. And so for me, it was always behind the camera. But while I was doing that, I always had a fascination with trying to learn how everyone else had to do their jobs to get me to do my job. So in theater productions, I'd stage manage or do props or things like that. Uh, In film class, I would be the cameraman or the boom operator and what have you. So it's always been sort of a get to know everyone sort of game for me uh while i'm not currently doing much in the ways of acting i've now shifted my passions to being able to find an outlet for devouring all the movies that i do watch frequently right and what would be some of those actually uh for me some of my favorite films uh it's sort of a three-way tie uh, as far as classicism goes, I've got 12 Angry Men, the, the classic uh, Sidney LeMay film. Uh, as far as comedy goes, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. I know it's not everyone's favorite Wes Anderson movie, but it's probably my favorite Bill Murray performance, so I really resonate with that. And as far as a, sort of a guilty pleasure movie would be something like Snatch, where I just love how the action, the comedy, and the drama all intertwine together in Guy Ritchie's seminal gangster film. What about you? What are some of your favorite films? Well, with my studies at university, I ended up actually teaching film, primarily Iranian cinema, and I actually wrote two theses, one on mental illness represented aesthetically, and one that invoked female sexuality through film noir and neo-noir, and how that either affected or was affected by feminism and the different waves of it. So you're going to find two neo-noir films in my top three, um... My third favorite film ever is David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, the thrilling, mind-busting film you have to piece together yourself, otherwise you'll be as lost as the characters in it. Um, Roman Polanski's Chinatown comes in second with the ultimate screenplay I have ever witnessed and some perfect, perfect performances and the ultimate tribute to film noir and neo-noir, both past and present and, and the future, actually. But I've got to go with my number one, Sergio Leone's the good, the bad, and the ugly. An ultimate ride, a three-hour trip of greed, evil, disgusting behavior. But it's all rewarding because of that beautiful tone and just how alive and raw that movie feels, which is some of the best movie magic I've ever witnessed. 
That's pretty cool. I, I will admit I have not seen any of your three favorite films, so I guess I have some catching up to do. Well, I don't know if they'd be for everyone. I think Mulholland Drive might be a quite a test for some people, but um, if you had to pick a favorite director, just out of curiosity, would it be Wes Anderson? Would it be anybody involved with the movies you mentioned? Uh, it would probably be a toss-up between Wes Anderson and the Coen brothers. Uh, solid choices, I'd have to say. My personal favorite would be the Swedish mastermind Igmar Bergman and his different tests of human strength. As I mentioned earlier in my introduction, one of the things that we're going to be doing is watching all the Best Picture winners. So far, there's been 87 of them. What we're doing is 10 by 10 going through from the earliest up to the most current, watching all the Best Picture winners, and then sort of ranking them. The reason why we're choosing 10 at a time, other than it being a nice, solid round number, is the fact is once you go more than 10 years, you're you're almost comparing different eras of films. So for this... We're starting with the very first best picture, which was Wings, and we're going up to uh, the last of that group, which I believe was The Life of Emile Zola. Correct me if I'm wrong, Andres. I don't have the years in front of me. <laughs> no, that that's 100% what it is. Perfect. Which is 1936, I believe. 1936, yes. Yep. Um, and then what we did is after we watched them all, we rated them out of 10, we combined our ratings, and somehow we I spit out this formula where we figured out the best way to to show both of how we felt about it. So without further ado, uh, let's get started. Tell us what film came in 10th place, Andreas. With number 10, the lowest score, and it might end up being the lowest out of this whole project, who, who knows, but... We have the glorious 1931 Western film, Cimarron, directed by Wesley Ruggles. This is a very peculiar film where you have pioneering, um, gunplay, identity crises. Okay, to be fair, Cimarron has a lot of confusion going on with it, and that's primarily the main problem with it and why it's actually considered one of the most undeserving winners of the best picture of all time as a western fan myself i see that there are many problems with it even by western standards where there is very little to do with how one character has to do with the city or the town around him where the main character is almost like a bible figure or biblical figure rather and everyone must bow down to him, even when the story has nothing to do with him at all. It's muddled. It makes very little sense. Very little bit of it is actually good. Before I have an aneurysm, why did you think this was bad? There's a few different things. I think the first thing to point out is the movie is super racist. They It starts out where they 
have a, a houseboy who loves watermelon and can't work hard enough and you can't tell if he's really is he a slave is he a servant is he just a local boy who they are doing good for him and giving him a job it's really hard to tell and all of it is just super offensive about that i've got to agree i mean if one of the first shots you see is this boy again either a slave or a servant then again i don't think servants are treated this way being lifted above a table, fanning every white person below him with a massive fan, that is not a great first impression for a movie. I don't care what year it is. And it's sort of odd because the character, the main character, Yancey, he seems to be very progressive with things like native rights, but it still feels sort of racist. I don't know if that's just the time that it was filmed, if that there was just a bit of internal conflict going on. Uh, but that's really the least of the worries because there's other issues with it. Did you have any other problems with it? Well, the fact that very little of the story had any importance, I get the idea that this was adapted, but it's probably one of the poorest adaptations of any source material I've ever seen. You see plot points kind of just merely exist just to give this, again, this near biblical character some sort of an ego of which we have to inflate for him. He, he can't even do it himself. Whereas the movie shifts between being about him and not being about him, but somehow he's still this golden man, this all-American hero that somehow has a movie based all around him. And you have an awful dos ex machina of an ending, which is essentially an ending that has no rhyme or reason, pulled out of thin air just to wrap everything up, which again furthers the point that this movie tried to make this man this ultimate John Wayne kind of hero and it just doesn't work. Now, now speaking of uh, the character being a little bit confusing, did you feel, was the movie about the main character Yancey or was it about his wife, Sebra? Well, it starts off about being about Yancey where you see all these outlaws looking at him and saying about this past that they had, which that's not interesting filmmaking. Why don't we have some development and not just start three quarters of the way through these relationships these characters have? And that's kind of what the film does as well, where you see all of this progression of Yanti's character, then he disappears. And suddenly it's about his wife and her responsibilities with regards to the city. It makes very little sense, especially because at the very end of the film, it's Yanti that's triumphed and it's not her, which I think is, really really silly yeah i think as as one last note about it is this movie probably had the worst most over dramatic deaths i've ever seen on film <laughs> yeah it's unfortunate because what did you think of that first opening rush scene i thought you know maybe i might be too hard on this movie look at that great opening shot even though it's virtually the only good thing in that movie aside from the the one occasional moment within like the gunplay that happens it's unfortunate because you have such a graceful well-directed opening shot but all of the deaths all of the speeches everything is so over the top that it's absurd and this is one of the few westerns to win best picture i'm sorry that's not something it should be proud of and there are so many more capable westerns of that can easily have this title over this one scarily enough the next Western to win Best Picture with was Dances with Wolves. 
which came out way 88 89 it was 90 i believe because it beat it beat goodfellas which was the big upset but even that which isn't my favorite film looks like citizen kane compared to simarin now coming in at number nine we have broadway melody that one came out in 1929 it was directed by harry beaumont um and it was sort of it's sort of a interesting play where Basically, what happens is these two sisters come to town, come to the big city uh, with a vaudeville act, hoping to make it on Broadway. And this producer is uh, dating one of the sisters, and he tries his darndest to get these two ladies famous. But then he ends up falling in love with the other sister. Um, it's it's very vaudevillian the way it's set up. It's got some interesting. Uh, set pieces with choreography numbers and things like that. Um, I I, de- I think I know you liked it more than I did. Uh, do you want to tell me? I guess what were some of the the finer points that you enjoyed about it? Well, I think we ended up giving it uh, the same rating because I initially had it a little bit higher than you. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it was flawed. Unlike Simran, which is insulting and just vile, the Broadway Melody is an—it's an innocent movie, aside from a little bit of the lack of care with its story and a little bit of sexism here and there. But you know, it's a movie that tried to really push something. And again, unlike Simran, this movie actually is considered a bit influential because of what it did for the musical genre. It's. Its influences are very, very small, but the fact that it did anything, it's still something to remark upon. And let's not forget that there's a color sequence that we didn't get a chance to really relish in because that footage has been lost in time. But you can imagine back then that this was something absolutely sensational and probably a big reason why it won. You know, it had its massive flaws, but I liked a little bit of the singing numbers. I liked its intentions, despite the fact that it often missed the mark. I just thought it was innocent. It wasn't something that was bad for the sake of just getting a movie out there, because I don't think that kind of greed existed back then, unless, you know, if you look outside of the Academy, maybe. But, you know, like, as a Best Picture winner, especially the one that's considered the lowest rated on Rotten Tomatoes, I think it's a little bit unjust, because I've been offended by at least two other movies on this list far more than I was with the Broadway melody. I I think for me, it had a lot of some, some really strong moments. Uh, Some of the sequences were were well thought out and the humor was decent, but because it was the the second best picture winner, I believe it it almost feels a bit like a, a college student's film because they kind of mix and match certain things with, little regard for how it turns out like they they still use title cue cards like they did in silent films now i understand the reasoning behind that was because not all theaters were equipped with sound so it has a bit of weird hey we're gonna set up the scene here but you know because you're listening you can see it anyways and we're just going to repeat exactly what was on the title card and sort of give the information twice Yeah, and it wasn't just the title cards that were kind of repeated. It's a lot of the jokes as well. There's a a character with a stammer where the punchline isn't funny the first time, let alone the 30 times 
he tries to say something, but he has to resort to saying something else instead because he can't get the words out. It's actually the joke that the movie ends on, as if we didn't see it again 30 times. And you see a common element of these men hitting on these beautiful dames where... Um, of course it's dated now, but I can also imagine back then, especially having watched all of these films that were, you know, wedged next to this one that, yeah, even for back then, it's still a bit over the top. And I also found that like people were talking over each other where sometimes you'd hear people talking in the background. Sometimes the, the lens selection would be a little bit fuzzy. I noticed that like characters would come in and out of focus because, the camera wasn't moving. It was a stationary camera. There are no tracking shots. There are no anything like that. The camera was standing there and people would walk into the shot. They'd be fuzzy. They'd move back a foot. They'd be in focus. And then when they left, they'd be fuzzy again. Yeah. And in that respect, it's again, why you brought up the fact that it seemed more of like a test footage film rather than an actual film, which back then I guess audiences forgave its problems. But when we get into some of the films that came after this one, especially the winner the year afterwards, it's also a bit mind boggling. It's interesting because this is the first film I watched for this project. And I expected a lot of similar films like this. Not so. And that's why my rating went down for it a little bit, because I actually got into the mindset of the people back then. And I realized, you know what, actually it's still weaker than the other films because yeah it's you can forgive it for being stationary because of how hard it was to move cameras around but once we get to the film the year later it's almost unforgivable the fact that it doesn't really try to not be a stationary camera shot that's not even in focus mind you now i don't know if you you notice but uh the person who is like playing the the owner of the broadway show that uh the main character jack was trying to get the two ladies on is actually a parody of the subject of a of a guy in one of the other films that we another musical that we liked far more did you notice that his name was Zigfield instead of Zigfield. Now that you bring it up, I actually didn't notice that. And it's weird because in my head while I was talking and I was saying, you know, there were films that did things better. One of the films I had in mind is a great Zigfield. So I guess who really won there, right? Yeah. And, and you know, you look at the dance sequences and... Um in Broadway Melody, while they weren't great, if you paid attention to some of the girls on the end of the chorus lines, you notice that their kicks weren't in time, things like that, which kind of diminish the quality. Yet when you look at, when we talk about it later, the great Ziegfeld, it's stark contrast. Like it's completely night and day as far as quality is concerned. Absolutely. I mean, if there's anything I took away from the Broadway Melody, it's that it was an effort to try make a comment on social classes and riches and and the poor and the divide between them it kind of gets lost up within its own vibe of music and thrills but again it's an innocent film so i can't be too harsh on it and some parts of it were a bit remarkable now speaking of the class system we have our film that comes in at number eight which is the 1933 film Cavalcade, directed by Frank Lloyd, who we will actually be bumping into again later on in this podcast. Cavalcade is a bit of an experiment, especially considering it's in the early 30s, where you solely visit the many years this aristocratic family 
has experienced. And it's less to do with the family and how they go about their day as much as it is them remarking on historical events such as the Titanic, the First World War, and even the Great Boer War of South Africa. It's, I could see why it's influential back then, especially for its what I consider an absolutely sensational ending, which is a big throwback to The Man with the Movie Camera, an experimental camera footage film released a few years earlier. But aside from that, it falls flat because it just tries way too hard to kind of set you in the mood rather than actually incorporate the family into any of these events where you witness something that's actually borderline offensive with the Titanic sequence where they just randomly end up on the Titanic and you can guess what happens to them where you see something like that in modern cinema with Robert Pattinson's film well, called Remember Me, I believe, where the ending was for no rhyme or reason. He was on the World Trade Center and you could guess that he died as a result of it and it had nothing to do with the rest of the movie. Yet back then, this was a film that was championed. Now, this kind of plot basis is almost offensive and it doesn't work too well. But for me, I thought the ending made it at least better than Cimarron. What did you think? Um, I guess I'll start. I'll start with the beginning before I get to the ending, how I felt of that. I thought the main, the two main actors, Clive Brooke and Diana Winward, who play the, the Marriott couple, were, had pretty good chemistry. Like they worked well with each other. They were pretty adorable. They, they had a nice rapport and they seemed like they were an old married couple. Um, that said, that's sort of one of the extents of my positivity will go the movie starts out where it's on the the eve of the the boer war about to break out and so they spend the first you know 10 15 minutes setting it up about how nervous they are about she's going to lose her husband to the war because he's going to be a officer in it and then their their two helpers are married as well and the male helper the butler is also going off to the war with them and then all of a sudden, you know, they're they're leaving for the Boer War, and then 30 seconds later, and one scene later, the war's over. So it was like, they're setting you up for, like, this big thing, you're wondering where, what direction they're going to take with it, and it's like, okay, on to the next major timeline thing, where we, we fast forward a few years, and that sort of kind of messed with you a little bit, because you got very emotionally invested into, oh, how is this war going to turn out? What's what's going to happen? Are they going to lose someone? And, and so I found that a little bit um odd do you want to maybe explain a bit about the titanic situation a bit better about how that played out well if anything it was almost the complete opposite of what happened with the boer war there was very little setup you just see this couple on the boat and it was his uh, it was their son and his new wife right and there how much time was devoted to that scene like 15 minutes 20 minutes it was a good chunk of time where you know it's a nice setup, as you were saying. It's like, oh, it's dialogue. It's character study. This is interesting. And you actually see a bit of plague between the two characters. But out of nowhere, they move from the center of the shot. You see a lifesaver that says the Titanic on it, and it just leaves. You don't see anything else apart from that. And later on in the film, you discover, oh, wait, they died. So, um, yeah, if that's not, again, borderline offensive, I don't know what is. 
at least with the Boer War, you knew that it was the war going on. And while it was a letdown that you barely saw the war, this had virtually nothing to do with a Titanic except for where it fell in the timeline. They threw the characters on there, made you like them, and suddenly killed them for really no reason. And like Cimarron, this book was, or this movie was also adapted from a novel. No, so from I could have. From a play. Oh, oh, it was from a play. Yeah, which which is something I actually want to talk about. Um, it, it was written by Noel Coward, who is a, a genius playwright, very, very famous, uh, who's v- quite well known for his, his wit and intelligence. His most famous play is called Blythe Spear. It's actually playing in Toronto right now. Um, but he's, he's a fantastic playwright. And yet I was so disappointed. And in fact, I actually feel like I judged it even harsher because I knew what the source material was. Um, simple things like the whole movie seems to be about foreshadowing and it, none of it is very subtle. When this married couple, when their, uh, when their son is young, uh, he likes playing with his, uh, soldier toys, his war toys. And then when he grows up, he can't wait to enlist in the army and becomes an officer there. And then they're, um, the other girl, uh, sorry, their servant's little girl loves dancing and has a dance recital. And of course, years down the line, she becomes a professional dancer. It seemed like everything was sort of knocked on your head. Be like, this is what the character is, and they're not going to change in the slightest in 20 years from now. Right. And it's often a question of what's a bad adaptation. I don't think changing the source material is a bad adaptation. I think this is a bit of an example. I haven't read the source material, but you can almost bet hard money that the way everything played out in the original piece was way more fluent and way more graceful than what happened in this film. And as you said, the foreshadowing was just so in your face and strong. You know, it'd be a surprise if he played with soldiers and suddenly grew up to be a doctor. It'd be like, whoa, hang on a second. That's actually interesting. You know, if you see him as a child playing with soldier toys and you get the premise of the movie, you can basically guess, oh, he's going to go to the war. Yeah. You know, that war. It would have been more interesting if he was playing with the soldier toys and seemed all gung-ho about it and then became a pacifist when he was older. That would have been more interesting. Right. And let's say the the girl still became a dancer and let's say they both met up and it's like, what happened to your dreams? I changed. What about yours? I fought for mine. And even that would have been a bit better of like this contrasting issue. But no, instead, everyone's just kind of stale, except for, you know, the main husband and wife that you were talking about, which is one of the few saving graces. Again, great chemistry. And they help make the ending so something that's actually kind of sympathetic and kind of sad. And it's weird to get emotion from a movie where basically the big bulk of it is pretty much rotten almost never mind stale for me i i know you really enjoyed the ending i almost felt it was a little bit heavy-handed where it was like war is bad okay let's not go to war let's all love each other and family is important sort of thing what what made it stand out for you that was so excellent well it is heavy-handed and I don't know. I guess I have a bit of a softer spot, a softer, a softer spot in my heart, depending on how it's done and what it's trying to say. Um, it was a bit weird and it does feel a bit phony because it's like, hey, here's a movie and here's why it happened. But again, I liked the throwback to, you know, the the Russian filmmaking and I liked 
just the way it was all put together. To me, that was like the very opening shot of of Cimarron, but done better and done with a lot more purpose where it's, ah, I get why this could have really blown people away back then. And it's still good filmmaking, despite the fact that it is really corny. I mean, you can look at Spielberg and say, yeah, he's cheesier than anything, but it's still a good filmmaking, despite the fact that it's cheesy. Right. And, um, to me, it was just, it had a lot to say. It just tried to speak for a lot of things that didn't, that couldn't really speak for themselves, I think. So to me, it was kind of a little bit of an uplifting moment. Maybe. All right. Now, moving on to number seven, we have Grand Hotel from 1932. It was directed by Edmund Goulding, and it's the story of a group of individuals staying at a luxurious hotel in Germany. And it's sort of like a whole bunch of different stories and how they intermingle and intertwine and their lives are forever changed. And it has a fantastic cast. It's got uh, Greta Garbo, John Barrymore, uh, Joan Crawford, Lionel Barrymore, and some other really good character actors as well. Um, so that's that was really the draw for it is that, hey, look, we've got all these stars under one roof and uh let's see how they act together um and so because of that everyone is shot very elegantly you know the women especially greta garbo is shot in soft lighting and looks mysterious and sensual and sexy and you know the john barrymore looked dashing the hero he was here to save the day um what did you feel about the performances i thought the performances themselves were excellent and actually some of the finest we had within these 10 films that we watched um like uh what what film was it we were talking about uh okay cavalcade actually like cavalcade uh the or the grand hotel tried to do something a bit different for its time where we've seen its formula done a lot now where it's kind of a movie that just is a character study but because of all of this huge amount of talent it really, really works with it with what it tries to achieve. And you see a lot of pathos, a lot of chemistry between people and just seeing how it sparks off of other characters that might be in another room or be af- affected without being directly affected. You know, just everybody felt like a movie star, despite those being more beautiful and proper than others in terms of standards. But you know, everybody still felt like a good old golden age of Hollywood kind of celebuton. And no, I thought everybody was absolutely superb. I don't think any of them were, were necessarily bad, but as, as far as I go, uh, Lionel Barrymore stood out for me. He was playing this sort of, uh, poor guy who uh, was nearing the end of his life and decided to use all of his savings to have one last hurrah and check himself into the finest hotel in the world and just experience life and be surrounded by this these other rich, elegant people. And so his performance, I thought, was the most true. There's a scene in it where I don't think it was completely necessary, but it was Lionel Barrymore got really drunk and then he has to go up to his hotel room and there I, I don't know how much it added to the the movie itself but his performance was amazing and it really developed his 
happy-go-lucky, carefree attitude. And it was just sort of like you watch that scene and you can't help but have a smirk on your face. Yeah, I I think we're, we've witnessed a lot of those scenes where a lot of them don't really make sense and we'll feature some more with the movies as we go on. But if anything, as you said, it's a good showcase for exceptional talent, like, as you said, um, Lionel Barrymore as Otto. And I feel he was one of the stronger characters as well because of, the again, the massive disconnect between this man who's life is basically falling before him being featured next to all of these huge celebrities who think, Oh dearie me, my life is over because I have to go on that stage and somebody made a comment or something, you know, and it's, it's just very interesting to see the different goals and achievements and fears of human life basically standing right next to each other. It's, it's wonderful outside of Lionel's uh, Otto Kringlein character, um, outside of him, none of them were really good people. They were all very flawed. They all were kind of bad, sort of woe is me characters, whereas Otto was definitely the, the only truly likable person who, who didn't give you a reason to dislike him. Uh, and you're always kind of rooting for him. What did you think of uh, of? Garbo's performance specifically. Well, before I go into that, you've raised a good point, and it's interesting because he's seen as like this disgusting figure in the hotel, yet he's probably the most innocent and honest one there. Um, to go with Garbo's performance with her classic line, I I want to be alone, um, which kind of came in the film really quickly compared to where I thought it would have placed mentally. Um, I thought she was good, but I feel like as I did some of the characters and I think you might agree while the actors were good. Some of the characters are a little bit weak because they go from either being exuberant and full of energy to being again, all depressed and self-pitying or they go vice versa, which her character did while she did an excellent job. I feel like the character, you know, was way too black and white and it wasn't just because of the cinematography, you know, it's, um, she's either, like drowning in her woes and nobody can save her or she's ready to like flee to Paris with somebody because she now feels like a superstar. You know, the character itself was a bit flat, but I think if there was any saving grace, it was Greta Garbo's pretty honest portrayal of that as honest as you can get. I think. Yeah. Speaking of the cinematography, which you mentioned, uh, the main sort of connection through it all was the fact that there's this, grand hotel to speak of was almost a character in itself and there's this great lobby front desk sort of circle the front desk was like a, a giant circle in the middle of the lobby and there was plenty of crane shots and dolly shots showing off the impressive set which i think really added to it and, and definitely made me like the film more yeah and as you said it is a main character because there isn't a real concrete plot that intertwines everything until the very end where you hear the the line, the great hotel, nothing really happens here. You know, you've just basically witnessed a series of vignettes that kind of intertwined, not fully always. And yeah, we've seen a lot of similar films since where they have an overall message as opposed to a concrete story. Like we've seen it with Crash, which we will eventually visit. Uh, we saw it with Magnolia, which sadly we won't visit because I think it did that kind of tying of all of these loose stories very, very fine. Um, 
But for now, with a film back in the 30s, I think it did a pretty decent job at it. And the fact that it did create this architectural character when many faces were being made as the first celebrities were being born. Like this is right after Charlie Chaplin, who's considered the first celebrity. You have Joan Crawford and Greta Garbo, who are so big at that point that they couldn't even be on camera together because they had to fight one another. You know, it's it's interesting that they did make a building actually kind of speak on behalf of everything where it swallows all of these small ant like people up. It's it was a very interesting choice, actually. I I think you liked slightly more than I did. As far yeah. as I go, it's not necessarily a can't-miss film. It's more one of those things where if you're really interested in where do some of these big names get their aura around them, like Garbo, Crawford, or the Barrymore brothers, it's definitely an interesting one to check out. But but I don't, I don't feel that anyone is missing a huge blind spot from their film history if, if they don't end up watching this. I agree because... Oddly enough, out of the 10 films we have to watch, this is one of the more acclaimed ones. I do think it's good, but I'm with you. I I feel like it is. it was something that was below what I was expecting. And I don't think I set a very high bar for it because I went in not knowing what I was going to see. But speaking of preferences, I did prefer this one more than you did. And let's go to one that, even though I think this is a solid movie, I think you have a lot more to say, especially positively about. It's The Great Siegfeld. The Great Siegfeld is a big biopic epic. I believe the very first biopic to actually ever win, where you have the tremendous performance by William Powell as the aforementioned Great Siegfeld. You see his early days as a man trying to sell circus performers and get them attention, up to the point where he becomes... This man who was challenged by society to keep up his his huge success and his title of as being the greatest entertainer or provider of entertainment that the city has ever seen. At first, I was the first little bit of the movie. I was really hesitant to kind of get into it and really appreciate what it was doing. It was kind of light and comedic, but it wasn't really there wasn't anything really interesting happening. But then as the film sort of progresses to show how successful this uh, Broadway vaudevillian type theater in Prezio gets, it started to get more and more interesting. The character got better, but also the film itself got a whole lot better. Um, uh, At the beginning, I feel like the character spent too much time telling rather than doing which is a huge fault you never want to tell something that you can show um but everyone really had great comedic timing but it got a little annoying when uh, at the beginning one of his uh singers the the french singer that he signs uh she kept flip-flopping about love and that got a little bit of annoying fast it how about the, the before we get into like the the latter bit? What about that first third of the film for you? Did it catch your attention, or were you on the fence as I was? I think with the the French singer, I I might have liked it a little bit more than you did, but I did have a few of the same issues. But otherwise, oddly enough, I was pretty hooked for the first third for some reason. I don't know what it was. I think it was me feeling sorry for Ziegfeld's character, just seeing his efforts and seeing 
the actual humanity behind the man who has to scream all of these fallacies to try and sell an entertainment piece, you know, and I truly felt for the character. I saw his attempts and his efforts and you can kind of really see the building blocks of how he got to where he was. And I don't think it was as much of the story that did that as much as it was Powell's very phenomenal performance where every little bit of it was calculated precisely. And um, I might've actually had a little bit more of a problem with the latter bit as you were going to go into soon enough. But um, as for the first third of it, I was actually okay with it. Hmm, that's interesting. As far as Powell goes, yeah, he's, he's the glue for sure. You can't help but like and root for the guy every time that he seems down on his luck. You're like, come on, just let's get to the next scene. You could do it, buddy. And then you'll, you'll be back on your feet again. And sure enough, you know, the next scene comes and miraculously he's back on top of the world again. But so much that has to do with William Powell just being so likable and you can't help but cheer for him when, when things go well and cry for him when things aren't going well. Um, but then I felt that the movie really picked up when he started, he was really famous for having these things called the Zigfield Follies and Follies is just like, uh, kind of a, a vaudeville term for, you know, there's going to be singing and dancing and comedy and things like that. And so his was the Follies are going to be the greatest show ever made. And then it started in some older films when they're really long, there's an intermission for anyone who's never seen a really long old film. Um, right before the intermission is the first Zigfield Follies. And it starts out where there's a whole bunch of women singing and playing instruments and the stage is rotating and there's a bunch of columns behind them and a curtain behind the columns. And then as it does a full rotation, the curtain starts to pull up. And you realize that it's a giant rotating staircase. And all along the staircase, there's more women and men performers all singing along and dancing and wearing these extravagant costumes ranging from mermaids to centurions to tuxedos to a whole bunch of things. And as the curtain goes up and up and more of the staircase is revealed, it keeps getting more elaborate and the whole purpose of it was to showcase how the Zigfield Follies were the greatest show on earth. Watching it, it was not hard to believe that the direction, the cinematography, the choreography was all on point for that. What, what did you feel for that? Well, this is something that I know you've probably gone through many a time where you sometimes have to split your critical mind and your entertainment mind. And as an actual film that tells a story, there's a lot of time kind of wasted looking at these events, but as an aesthetic entertaining piece, oh my goodness, did you feel that you were really watching this within the audience way back when, never mind the movie theater that would have played this back in the 30s, you know? The big rotating piece we just saw all these entertainers, that alone was mesmerizing, never mind. There's been hundreds of them too. My God, yeah, and I have no idea how they how they pulled that off. Never mind, again, all the talent within the film. You know, if it's implied that people are talented, you know, you see them playing the piano and it cuts to their hands and it's somebody else, whatever. But these were all talented people. Even the zanier acts where you have this wonky slapstick tap dancer, 
he was one of the best dancing numbers I've seen in probably any film. And again, reminded me a bit of singing in the rain. Absolutely. And that I wish is, I wish that was one we could cover for this project. Cause that is an absolute standard for dancing and film. But this, as you said, it reminded me of the kind of stuff that they achieved with that. And for a film back in the thirties, when singing in the rains in the fifties, when they really fine tuned, you know, the musical craft, that's saying a lot. And while you weren't being told a story with all of these parts, except for the fact that Zigfield pulled it off for like half an hour straight, it's still highly entertaining. So with that, I've got to give kudos to it. Yeah, I feel like definitely the strongest part of it was the cinematography and the choreography working together, along with the direction of, of how it was all sort of placed. But I guess I, I would call that the, the choreography. After the intermission, they kind of do a few more of the Follies sequences, and it just seems like every every setup, while it isn't as grand as the giant staircase, it gets more and more impressive as how intricate the the, the choreography was and what they were doing with the camera um especially when you're comparing it to some of the other musicals like Broadway Melody these two films aren't even in the same playing field as the as far as the way that they were shot yeah no kidding that's what we were saying before when yeah when you see Broadway Melody and we did both watch that before the great Siegfeld you know i we kind of gave it more kind of the benefit of the doubt seeing okay well maybe all of the films were like this back then but no the great Ziegfeld came out kind of substantially a lot of time later yes but it's still recent enough to say okay there's a great divide between what we saw with this film and what we saw with this film and uh, the great Ziegfeld pulled off some really impressive stuff whereas I do feel that it was weaker with story I felt a lot of that was picked up through Powell's performance the way you saw like the lighting boards doing all of the credits, all of these huge dance numbers, even just the story being told with these massive sets and these huge wide shots. The whole thing was just theatrical from start to from start to finish. And that's basically what its goal was. And it succeeded, honestly. Now, as far as like we're, we're talking about all of the details for these big set pieces, I don't know if you noticed the intricate details of, do you remember how at the very beginning of the film, when he's struggling, he talks about how um, if you rub an elephant's trunk, you get good luck or something like that? Yes. Did you notice how almost every single shot after that had an elephant in it? I noticed a lot of elephants, actually. I didn't know how frequent they were, but I did notice. So. It was pretty frequent between any shot of him in his house and some of the, the actual stage sequences. There were elephants all over the place. So I, I really appreciated that attention to detail that they, that they brought to it. I guess that was something where um, Zigfield's wife was involved with it. Yeah. And and I think that might have been something that she sort of pushed the the film to have to have a level of authenticity yeah again i feel like this movie aesthetically was way stronger than it was as a story piece but with that it it was still a pretty easy three-hour ride to get through so all the better if if i do have a complaint about it this is right about the time when um the hollywood code was going into effect for people that don't know uh the hollywood code was a set of rules where um 
everything was basically sort of neutered in the industry. You know, there's there's no nudity. You can't say bad words. Um, it can't be anti-American. The bad guy always has to either be killed or arrested, things like that, which really hindered some filmmaking. But at the same time, it also allowed for some filmmakers to get creative. It separated the cream from the crop. But that said, I feel like if it wasn't for the code, this film could have been a lot better. It could have been more sensuous and sexual and risque as far as the performances were going. You kind of got hints of it where they made jokes about how little the dresses were that the girls were wearing, but mm-hmm. it didn't really show it per se. And I think I think I don't want it to be like, oh, you know, strippers dancing around, but I think it could have been a little bit more sexy if it wasn't for the code. Yeah, perhaps there was probably a lot of his life that we didn't really get a chance to see in full, and that's because of that code. But what can you do, right? Yeah. Uh, Moving on to the next picture on our list, in number uh, five, halfway through now, we've got The Life of Emile Zola. Uh, It's a biopic, another one, uh, about the famous French author uh, Emile Zola, who is a muckraker, which basically means that you're disturbing the political rest um and it's sort of kind of chronicling it's it's both sort of chronicling his life and his work but also dealing with one specific instance of a french army uh officer being wrongfully accused of treason and emile zola fighting to uh get him free now, it's called The Life of Emile Zola. Would you call it that if you were naming it? No, for two reasons I wouldn't. But I will also play devil's advocate against myself, oddly enough. First of all, you don't really see his life. You see him in his older years only getting older. And secondly, a good chunk of it is in relation to that officer's trial, which is Alfred Dreyfus, who was wrongfully accused. And a lot of that was devoted to trying to make this man seem innocent as he's rightfully supposed to. Now, I do think it. if I was to argue with myself that it is a worthy title, the only reason I could think of is the fact that he fought his entire life to make a statement against the political system saying that it's not always right. And if anything showcased Emil Zola's strive to show that it's about the people and not about the higher-ups, I guess it's the Dreyfus trial. Yeah, I I do agree. Um, It was sort of interesting because the first little bit was, you know, they showed him when he was a poor, struggling writer and friends with the the famous uh, artist Cezanne. Um, And then it finally shows him getting successful. And then it's almost like a greatest hits montage of showing all of these books that he wrote and all of the success he had. It went from him being a sewer rat to being uh, the most important person in France basically overnight. Uh, But that seemed to go way too quickly. And then they sort of focus on, after showing all this and setting up the character, they spend a good chunk of the second act showing him being a lazy fat slob joining the bourgeoisie that he was rallying against and for a little bit i i wasn't sure if it was an actual uh choice that the film made i was i was getting frustrated i was getting angry i was like come on what are you doing zola like you you spent all this time in your youth starving trying to fight for the everyman and then you became the very thing that you despised 
And it wasn't until Cezanne came back into the picture that he sort of knocked it over the head and pointed out that Zola had become one of the elite that he had fought against that it truly sort of hit me that it was all a stylistic reasoning. It was a bit of an odd way to kind of get to that point, but in the end I think it was successful because I spent so much time questioning and being frustrated that he wasn't helping anyone, which led the actual trial to be have far more weight than uh, than I had originally would have thought. Yeah, I remember when we talked about this when we both first watched it that the movie almost fell flat because it was this hypocritical character that fought to have a say and just suddenly didn't care to. But the ending justifies it because you see him change and actually look at himself and say, what happened to me? I became the man I fought all these years not to be, but I'm back. And I have a thing. I have a point to say, I have many points to say actually. And here I go again. And it's, it's nice to see that kind of spark instilled back in his life again, especially because of the touching trial that he's, that he's a part of. And it's something that, makes the movie a lot stronger than it easily could have been, which I guess, yeah, it is based on life events. I don't know how much of it's actually true or not, but you know, it went from a movie that could have been disastrous and kind of pointless to being something that is actually kind of profound and it still holds up really well today. It does. I I felt to give a little bit more of a backstory on what the trial was about for the, for the Dreyfus character. Um, there was a, uh, a French mole that was sending information to Germany about uh, the French army, and they couldn't, they didn't want to believe who it was, so they basically falsely accused this Dreyfus guy, threw him away, even though that there was a ton of paper trail showing that it wasn't him and that they knew who the real guy was. And then by that point, they couldn't admit that they were wrong because they were so far into it. Um, and, and they couldn't look like they were the idiots the whole time, even though, you know, they had a man literally rotting away on an island somewhere, screaming out every day, I'm innocent, I'm innocent. Um, but I found it all super relevant today, like, relating it to someone like Edward Snowden, where they have information, they try to bring it forward, you know, they get shut down, and the government, if they want to, they can bury an innocent person uh, with no regards to the consequences or anything like that because they absolutely have that ability to. And it's sad because in the modern cases of Julian Assange and Edward Snowden, it's not the Dreyfus character that's being imprisoned. It's the Mio Zola character that's trying to speak for the people and say, this is something you're not being told. This is something you should know. And they're being persecuted. That's what's really sad. So you got both sides of it in Emil Zola. But at the same time, it's almost bittersweet that he almost had it a little bit easier back then. It's it's unfortunate. But it's again, it still holds up because of the fact that, sadly, society hasn't changed enough from the 30s or even before then, whenever the actual events happened, that we're still making the same mistakes within our government. But... 
if anything, at least we could still see the high importance of it, right? Yeah, and then during the actual trial scene, when um, when they would call on officers to come and read the documents that they had sent out, um, the government was going to choose, pick and choose of what was classified. They'd say, "Oh no, this person can't talk because they uh, they know information that might be a threat to uh, society if it gets out." Oh no, you can't read this document. Okay, if you do want to read, it's going to be heavily redacted to the point where it says, "Hi, blankety blank blank. I did blankety blank blank. Regards blank." Right, and if anything, it wasn't just used to silence people, but it was used to um, as a loophole to like save their own skin where it says, you see, I said this, it's all good, but you're not getting the full picture of what they said. So a lot of manipulation in that movie. It had one of the stronger screenplays, I think out of the 10 films we had to watch. And I think you'd, you'd agree highly with that, right? I definitely do. Um, to the point where it was like minor details. I know when we first watched and you were talking about it, you couldn't believe that after Dreyfus finally gets exonerated, that he would rejoin the army. Whereas there was something that I sort of picked up where um, the one guy who was in the army that was defending him and uh, ended up being named general. So I looked at it and I was like, hey, look, this is the guy who was the only one fighting for and instead of Dreyfus coming back and having his superiors as his bosses, which is probably far more of a likely scenario, um, comes back and the one person who stood by his side in the army ended up being promoted to be a superior, which was kind of a nice touch. Yeah, and that's, again, it probably had very little to do with real events, but in terms of telling a story, you're right, it's a very nice touch, and I'm glad you pointed it out for me because that was kind of like the saving grace as you had with as with Mila Zola's uh, turnaround and self-realization. Overall, a pretty, pretty wonderful movie, which on the topic of the army, which we'll touch upon another few times within this podcast, we have another army film, actually the very first Best Picture winner ever. It's the 1928 film wings in the very first year of the academy there were actually two separate awards for production and quality of production the other film to have won was the german film sunrise a song of two humans which arguably has a lot better quality of of filmmaking hence why it won for its quality of production but once everything changed the winner ended up being wings because that's what was the primary focus of the of the best picture winners from there on in and to be honest it's actually a very strong film it's the only silent winner until 2011's pseudo silence film i'd call it the artist but in terms of being the, the sole true spirited silent film it holds up amongst its contemporaries so strongly it's got fantastic flight sequences i still can't really wrap my head around it still has the good old classic nature of silent films and the things that were stuck within that era it's got the frame rate we all come to love and wish to re-experience it's a solid silent film with a bit of a bit of a surprising element of actually pathos to it which you wouldn't expect in silent films back then unless you're buster keaton or charlie chaplin what did you think of wings actually it is definitely a step up as far as comparing it to other silent films i know some people aren't 
aren't really to get on aren't able to get on board with silent films and and that's not an issue that I really have but this I think it's especially with the the remastered edition that came out a few years ago where they added some sound effects like airplanes and what have you it's super easy to watch and it's not some little fluff piece like uh, unlike another war film that we're going to talk about later, there's actually blood being shown when they're boxing. There's blood coming out of their mouths and on their shirts. When they get shot, there's blood coming out of their arms, which I thought was pretty interesting. And there's there's even nudity in it, too. Yes, I noticed that. I was going to bring that up as well. It's for a split second, but to safely say the very first Best Picture winner actually has nudity in it, I mean, who would have thought, right? Yeah, it was, it was definitely interesting. Um, I, I thought one thing that really stuck out for me was early on in the film, these two main characters, best friends and rivals, uh, are so excited to to eventually get to fly when they're at training camp. Um, they sort of avoid showing the, fil- the the flying aspect at all to the point where the first flying scene shown you see the shadow of the plane over the buildings you don't actually see the plane so i thought that was a pretty clever way to introduce it, and they saved the reveal of the flying for later and what a reveal that was i mean i i do like silent cinema i have my share of films i am interested in but for me to be inches away from my screen with my eyes wide open, especially when shots have been colored over with, with the pastels to show the flames of the planes that are like nose diving after being hit. Even with that kind of dated aspect to it, I was still so astounded by some of the feats that have been pulled off with these flying sequences. And while they did run for a little long, I devoured every small millisecond of those scenes i thought they were absolutely phenomenal and you're right the big build-up to these scenes is partially what makes it because you don't know how this is going to be pulled off you see a lot of the slapstick kind of falling over on the ground you see a lot of like the quirky emotions and and expressions while everybody's still talking to one another but then you get to this, the crooks of the movie, before you get to the, the to the latter stages of the story, and everything makes a lot of sense. To me, it's almost like the Deer Hunter, which we'll visit eventually when we get to the 70s, where you're waiting and waiting and waiting to see what Vietnam's like, and you get there, and it's such a quick push right into it that you don't even know how to escape. Whereas, at least in Wings, it's a pleasant escape where you're glad to have been shoved in, but at the same time, you're still never quite prepared for what you're about to witness. Yeah, um, I think where it lost some marks for me, where I didn't care for the color correction, adding the the yellow flames when planes planes were being shot down. I didn't think that was really necessary because there's still smoke coming out. Because mm-hmm. there's a scene later when they shoot uh, a hot air balloon down, and that went down, and there's flames. You could see the flames but it wasn't color corrected. So I just found it a little bit an unnecessary addition. Well, maybe back then it was since cinema was still like this brand new thing. uh, Well, then again, it's been around for a few decades by now, but let's just say big long motion pictures were still trying to find their footing. Um, Maybe it was harder to differentiate which planes were getting hit. I don't know. Maybe for us, it was easier than it was back then possibly i don't know i i just think the contrast of being able to see the balloon very clearly go down uh in, in flames was was more than clear enough um 
Another sort of weird thing was is early on when uh, they get into the first big dog fight, the the German pilot decides to back off when uh, David's gun gets jammed. It's just kind of a, a hokey little moment being like, oh, yeah, I'm sure war, war they had that much respect for their enemies. Yeah, well, there are a few hokey moments, which, again, is the spirit of silent cinema, unless you're, again, Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin. Um even the part where it's in between the war sequences, you see the main characters being very inebriated and a, a big portion of this, I guess, bridge of the film is seeing all these bubbles being emitted from everywhere, which maybe back then it was fascinating, but you probably agree that it was a little bit silly, not to the point that it ruined the film in any way, but it definitely was something that could have been shortened for me. It came close to to ruining that entire section for me, even though that was pretty good character development at times. I think it was a bit of a, a cheesy, poorly poorly scripted, poorly directed sequence. Right. And it's very rare for me to say, let's get back to the airplane sequences. You know, I'm not a big fan of Top Gun or Die Hard or any action movie like that. But It, it um, knew where it was successful. Yeah. It, it, it knew where it was successful, and that's what the feature was to see, especially since all the actors did their own flying, which was pretty crazy. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I mean, how often would you see that happening now? Never mind. Do, due to insurance reasons, due to the fact that planes are so complicated. I think it was just a certain a, a great moment where it was perfectly timed, where probably most of these actors were involved in the war, so they had a general idea of how to do these things anyways, mixed with the fact that early aviation wasn't exactly rocket science that it is today. I think it was, a, it was sort of a, a perfect boiling point where there was only probably a few years where they could have gotten away with that without having to worry about insurance and, and what have you. Absolutely. And the fact that they managed to film all of these plane sequences, I still don't really fully get how they did some of them. I mean, with more modern equipment, maybe, but for what they had back then, it's it's a bit of a perplexing experience, which is part of the charm as to why it still stands up pretty high. I thought the ending where the whole time uh, he was calling his car and his plane shooting star was a little bit cheesy. But the end, at the very end, there's a shooting star that they see in the sky, which is a callback to the very beginning of the film. It was a bit cheesy, but I was kind of on board with it because the film, as serious as it was, and, and I found some of the, the warfare fairly intense and graphic for that era uh there was still the bit of that comedic light-hearted moment that silent films need to have and so i wasn't as totally i wasn't as totally off put with the ending as i probably should be well i think that ending had to have existed back then because you did basically see a man accidentally kill his good friend and not even realize it i mean for the 20s that's probably some really heavy duty material um so to have that shooting star come back at the end and everything's hunky-dory again you know that was probably something that was necessary back then but you know give her if this was in the 40s instead maybe that wouldn't have been necessary at all yeah i i don't know uh it was still very fascinating with all the war and the the war scenes were shot very well um now going on to another actiony film would be uh number um 
three on our list would be Mutiny on the Bounty, the original one from 1935, directed by Frank Lloyd, who we mentioned earlier, and uh, having a fantastic cast, uh, headlined by Charles Lawton and Clark Gable. Um, This film is about um, a a seaman who successfully uh, leads a mutiny on the ship that he's on against the ruthless captain... Uh, the bounty is what the ship is called, and then later, after he has successfully commandeered the ship, the captain comes back trying to uh, get his revenge. Uh, sort of like, I guess, a precursor to Pirates of the Caribbean, but way more serious and far more fascinating. Well, there are a lot of things that I find remarkable about this movie, which is. This was one of the more astounding films I had to watch for this segment of the project. Um, The fact that the mutiny happens so far into the story, you really see the small incline of how little bit each and every moment every seaman, seaman was tested and how they were tortured, you know. To me, it mimicked a little bit of what you saw in um, Battleship Potemkin, you know, where you see the gradual, the gradual need for clarity where it's like, hang on a second. What are we, why are we being shoved under the rug like this and being stopped on by one man or like one group of men. And you see that gradual descent into anger that finally gets completely blown up by Clark Gable's character where mutiny is declared. And, it's beautiful because it happens so far into the movie that it actually makes perfect sense. It doesn't happen right off the bat. And you have these two lead characters that are that battle one another, both in the film and with their performances. You have Clark Gable's character, who is this macho man, kind of like the man in Cimarron, but actually done well and with the actual heroic purpose where you could see why they are the way that they are. And you have Charles Lawton's character who is despicable, vile, just an uh, overall unlikable person entirely. And when we talked about this before this episode, I think you agreed with me when I said that this probably had the most modern acting that we had to watch for these for these 10 films where Clark Gable's character is mimicked by, you know, Charlton Heston. You have Marlon Brando. Um, even Peter O'Toole, all of these characters reflect back on this kind of character that Clark Gable was a part of. And Charles Lawton is even more modern because you have people like Timothy Spall who seemingly, I could be wrong, seemingly take a lot from this kind of a performance, which was decades before any of them even started acting. Yeah, I would say right from the very beginning, you can tell that the the scope of the film was noticeable. It's one of the first real epics and it's deserving of that name. It's sort of a, a, a bit of a precursor to something like Lawrence of Arabia where, uh, everything was, was shot in wide lenses and it gave lots of room for the scenes to sort of breathe and for the action to take place. Uh, and then when they're on the island, how, you know, there's a noticeable shift in the way the cinematography is done. It's sort of very interesting to, to kind of see how well crafted it was. Yeah, I like the fact that you bring up the island shots because they did such a great job at making it what 
Clark Gable's character saw in it, this remote piece of the world that is far from anything else you've experienced. You know, you truly feel removed from all of the hatred that's upon the ship or back home. I, I thought one of the other kind of cool things was they used they had clever use of animated maps and uh, and innovative close ups of the faces. There's lots of close ups of the faces, so there's there's plenty of different unique camera movements that were going on, especially for something that in the the mid 30s had to be groundbreaking for sure. I can't imagine what it w- was like to see that for the first time. Yeah, and this is the kind of directing I was talking about earlier with Cavalcade, where Frank Lloyd's obviously trying to do something different here as he did with cavalcade cavalcade it didn't really work if anything you saw the class system being separated so much better in a film like mutity on the bounty where you see the underlings so to speak trying to overthrow the higher-ups who put them in a position where they had to rebel and if anything that showed a lot more of what cavalcade was probably trying to show and this is him doing a very good job where you can see his directing actually paying off. Everything is tightly knit with one another and everything is just well pieced together. I mean, it's a very solid movie, this. Yeah, and as far as uh, showing the good class systems and things like that, speaking, going back to Charles Lawton, who I was a huge fan of, uh, you were saying all these things about how, how he was cruel and mean and despicable and all these sort of things, yet they spent enough time to show his thinking and rationale behind everything. Yeah, he might have seemed like a, a jerk um, and, and pompous and things like that, but it was for... His decisions were for the good of the crew. Whether or not people liked it or understood it, there was reasoning behind everything that he was doing. Yeah, and like the actual mutiny itself, you can understand each and every single move that happened. Even when Lawton's character returns and continues to do unspeakable actions, despite the fact that he's lost all power and he's trying to gain it back, you still understand each and every move. You don't agree with it, but it still exists and it still makes sense. And that's because of the writing and Lawton's performance where you didn't really see a lot of anti-heroes back then. So for them to have a villain that actually is somebody you can actually stand behind and say, well, he has a point. You know, that was probably excruciatingly rare back then. Yeah, I think I would dock points for the music it was it was overly sappy and it was if it was more nuanced i think it would go from a really really good film to a great great film uh maybe it's just because it i don't think it that aspect may have aged as well as maybe the rest of it did well, yeah, sometimes it's hard to tell what will age well and what won't because um, you could have, obviously, highly sappy music and know it, or you could have something that sounds so strong and full of tone, but years later, yeah, it sounds over the top. But if we're going to look at films that age very well, even with the kind of over-the-top nature of what it's trying to say, you have the beautifully artistic film we have in number in our number two slot, All Quiet on the Western Front. This war epic, another epic, which I think is rightfully deserving of that title, is directed by Lewis Milestone, who I believe is the first director to win 
with the coinciding best picture winner. So it was the first time they were a paired win, I believe. And rightfully so this two and a half hour movie is something that I feel was hugely ahead of its time, especially the fact that it's bookended by the Broadway melody and Simran, our two lowest films so far. You have these shots that I can't even begin to explain how they pulled them off for the dawn of the thirties. You have these huge amounts of war sequences that even best those in wings for me personally. Um, You have this dark take on the war and a very upsetting ending, not in a way that it was badly written or anything, but in a way that for the thirties where everything had to be wrapped up a bit nicely just so it could be sent out. You don't really end on a positive note. It shows war as something that completely corrupts children. I don't know. What did you think about this? Did you like it as much as me? I I, I really did enjoy it. I, I know you did enjoy it a bit more than I did. Uh, one thing that I found fascinating was um, the early sequence of the Germans mowing down the enemy with their machine guns. It, it almost reminded me of like a video game on easy mode where it was just piles of bodies just lining up and and all these kids dying and it was it was actually a fairly intense it almost felt like the the battle scene some of the battle scenes felt like a nightmare um where you can you can almost directly see a through line to the uh the storming of normandy beach in saving private ryan yeah and that's not the only movie to be influenced by this you have so many you have um, films like Come and See, where, as you said, the movie feels like a nightmare, and that movie uses a lot of these aesthetic elements to try and recreate, again, a nightmarish experience. You have Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line, where you see the overhead shots and the bombs happening and exploding in the distance as they creep closer. And to see that in the 30s, I mean, that's remarkable, the fact that they pulled that off. Yeah, for sure. And the trench scenes were all they're brutal in every way everyone everyone is a brute and showing off the ugliness in everyone it it was very stark and it almost has an immediate post-traumatic stress disorder for the characters but also for the viewers as well so right away once once the actual battle scene sort of gets started because at the beginning it's very propagandist you know there's a teacher being like you need to be there for your country sign up there's no better sacrifice than giving your life but then after the first few battle scenes the boys are disillusioned right away and and the anti-war statement is very clear and after that it's it's all downhill from there as far as what the characters go through yeah it almost reminds me of the opening of citizen kane i remember the first time i watched it and you see all of these like journalistic intros where it's like see mr kane such and such going about his day and i and i was thinking to myself my goodness is this what the movie is but then you realize it's a projected image and you're you get sucked into the actual world of citizen kane it's dark it's dingy you're full of hyperboles being swarming around you. And that's kind of like the opening for All Quiet on the Western Front, where it is very proper. It's very full of propaganda. And you feel, oh, gee, mister, we're going to go to war and fight the enemy. But the entire remainder of the movie is claustrophobic when they're stuck underneath. And it's almost like a bin underground where they're squashed up against each other and dirt's clouding their mouths. They come up for air and they get mowed down by bullets. You see them trying to get about their day and 
they just see death le- left, right, and center. When before their biggest complaint was, how do we get this sergeant to stop being a dick? You know, it's a very big change in these young boys' lives, and to see how it corrupts them, it's it's saddening. And I love the fact that you don't really know who the main character is until the very end, when they're basically the sole survivor, and they come back and they say, "This is what war does to you." In fact, I need to go back and people think, oh, he has to go back because he's got to honor his country. He has to go back because he cannot live life ever again. It's all he knows. And to me, for the 30s, that is something that I'm surprised this even won. Despite the fact that it's a great film, I'm surprised it even won because of just how pessimistic it is about its subject matter. Especially since the fact that it's about Germany and this is... This is basically uh, just after World War II. No, it's just before World War II is started. So it's obviously tensions in Europe were very high. So it's sort of interesting to look at from a geopolitical spectrum and realize that this movie was made, this movie was successful, and this movie has sort of endured when all the odds were, were stacked up against it. Um, I, I actually noticed a funny line, not, not really funny, just sort of funny to me in a way where in one of the quieter moments, the, the boys are sort of arguing about what's the point of war. And one guy is saying there is no point, And the other guy is trying to explain about, no, it's about, you know, nationalistic pride and, you know, um, we're at war with France. And then he responds with, what did a mountain in Germany offend a field in France? And you just sort of let that hit you. And that's basically what war is. When you're trying to justify it on a nuts and bolts level, it comes down to what, what did, what did our piece of land on our imaginary borderline do to your piece of land over on your imaginary borderline? And it's also a question of who's bigger than who as well with that statement, which I think it's beautiful in so many ways, as well as, The very ending, which I think can be seen as hokey as well, but I think for the 30s, it's something that's very inventive where you just see the the final main character, the last one to survive, going back to war because, again, it's all he knows and he can't function in society outside of it, basically dying on the battlefield while he's trying to finally make peace with life and actually make contact with a butterfly that's somehow in the field that he's in. And he gets killed outright before he gets a chance to fully embrace it. And as you said, it's it's what it's a question of what war really is. War in that very ending sequence is something that takes away life. That's all it is, and that's what all quite on the Western Front's trying to say. Yeah, uh, I, I one of the things I actually found most fascinating that I never seen before in a film especially one this early was the film takes place from the german perspective and so all the soldiers are german and and all that is but it was made in hollywood so they're all americans playing these germans and they don't do any they don't even try to pretend like they're german other than when they're saying a german last name or a town or something like that they'll do a bit of an inflection but for the most part these are americans talking with their american accents pretending they're German. But in order to get around it, what they do is there's a scene where they meet some French women. The women speak only French. 
The audience doesn't understand it. The boys don't pretend to understand it. There's there's an obvious language barrier there, and it's pretty fascinating. And then when they're fighting the British soldiers, and at one point there's a British man dying in the trench next to uh, next to one of the kids. This dying man doesn't speak, so he's he's an English man, and we don't get the chance to hear him talk. So they sort of you sort of keep it in the sense of you're hearing it in your own head, whatever language you're speaking, which I thought was a pretty fascinating use of getting around the the German language barrier. Yeah, and I don't know if it was intentional, but you could attribute that as a way of saying the loss of life is universal. It doesn't matter what nationality is experiencing it. Yeah, it was just definitely a very innovative way to sort of get that point across that hey, you know, this is a German film, but we're not actually speaking German instead of it being like in Emile Zola where he's a French author, he travels to England, and they all have the same accent and they all understand each other perfectly and Zola can read English perfectly and all these sort of things where they don't even try to pretend like they're all speaking with the same accent. Maybe that was the rest of the life of Emile Zola. He just tried to go to all these countries and get them to speak the same language. It's something (laughs) that wasn't shown in the film. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, I also thought another interesting thing, uh, which is most notably done with things like The Wire, there was no emanating music. Yeah. Did you notice that there's the only times that music were was shown was uh in a beer hall there is music from a band playing, a couple scenes there's some radios being played, but there's no triumphant swells of the the Germans winning the war. There's no sad music when someone dies, none of that, which is always sort of fascinating to see. Even at the very end of the movie, you know, the main character gets killed, it cuts to black and you're sitting there going, I'm used to like this massive an MGM grand production ending and you don't get it for even for us. That's probably a bit upsetting, but can you imagine back in 1930, how unusual that must've been, how cold it must've left audience members. Yeah, absolutely. But now moving on to our number one film, we're finally there after all that time. I don't know if you're playing along, if you have, I'm to be open while you're, we're doing this, but Number one is It Happened One Night, which was a very famous, quite possibly the very first um, screwball comedy uh, directed by the great Frank Capra. And it's the story of a spoiled woman whose father doesn't want her to stay married to this other spoiled man. So she runs away and this news reporter ends up spotting her and helps her with her runaway in exchange for an exclusive story about how she ran away to her true love husband. But the whole time, it's this back-and-forth battle of the sexes, um, one-upsmanship with quite possibly one of the best comedic timing in films that you'll ever see. Absolutely, and there's a very big reason why it wasn't just the first to do this but it's one of only three films to pull this off it won all five of the major academy awards it was nominated for it won for best actress best actor best writing best director and best film which back then you're looking at winners like the grand hotel which wasn't even nominated for anything else or um, you know, the Broadway Melody, which didn't win anything else. All Quiet on the Western Front was the first film to win for Best Director, Best Picture. You know, awards were pretty scattered back then. But for it to be 
one of the only, never mind the first, to pull off such a feat, you'd have to question why until you watch it, and then suddenly it all makes perfect sense. The writing is top-notch, very quick, very clever. You have the delivery of the main actors, where everything is delivered as it absolutely should be. You have the directing that makes all of the scenery around it just so like so alive with the dialogue and you have like the chemistry between the two leads of course and just everything about this film is pretty much a spark and a jolt yeah it seems like these bits were all rehearsed or something like that you you watch it and you just left flabbergasted because you're laughing so hard firstly but it all everything just works perfectly together something as simple as um clark gable undressing in front of uh claudette colbert is turned into a funny bit where he's talking about how you know they say every man undresses the same way but that's not true you know i do it with my tie first and then my shirt and then my left sock and then my right shoe and it was just a very funny little bit where it didn't have anything really to do with the story but it just fits so perfectly to explaining who this character is yeah, and you see a lot of that happen years later. One of my all-time favorite movies, which is probably my favorite screwball kind of film, is Sherrod, where Cary Grant does a very similar scene where he's showering with his clothes on, and he's saying, oh, look, I've got these clothes. They're, they're waterproof, you see. Look at this tag on the inside. And he's describing his clothes. Again, there's no real rhyme or reason for it, but just to see the nature of this person when they're stopped, when where they're not, no longer being this snobby aristocrat or this man who's full of himself, they're finally being human. And in a screwball comedy, which this revolutionized the genre it happened one night, um, it's lovely to see. You see a lot of this happen even in Tarantino movies where Quentin Tarantino is a big screwball fan himself. You know, It happened one night, definitely set the standard for creating characters without solely having burdens or you know, like challenges they have to, they have to overcome, you know, it's just them being human. For, for this, it seems like, you know, by the time they tell a joke and that you understand what the joke means, they've already said five more. Yeah. And they might have even gone over your head because that's just how clever some of these are. Now I want you to defend it. I find, I found some of the humor while I still love the script and it's great. Um, I don't think the humor itself has aged very well. I found it a little bit sexist as far as um, mm. anytime Clark Gable would make a joke, it would be, haha, women are stupid and they don't know what they're doing and I'm here to save you, the damsel in distress. And then on the other side would be Claudette Colbert being like, you're just a chauvinistic pig. I'm going to be the graceful one and take the high road and show that I'm better than you. So, So can you defend... Obviously, I don't believe that you think it's sexist as much as that I do, where that's where the humor originates from. So so please have your say. I don't think it's sexist as much as it is a film that acknowledges both genders. Um, both genders are getting laughed at while they're laughing at one another. That's the way I see it. You see the man laughing at the woman and saying, oh, you see, this is why men are superior. Or women saying, oh, all men are all the same. They're all pigs. And later on, you see like that supposedly superior man, you know, having a lot of problems like, he, you know, he can't even like do the kind of tasks that he said that he makes up that he can pull off 
to the point that he's basically scrambling at the end and admitting, yeah, you know what, I'm not as strong as I thought I was. And then you have her character as this rich lady who is sought after, basically admitting, you know what, I make mistakes as well. And, you know, yes, I'm famous and I'm well-known, but at what cost? Is it about me or is it about my title? And to me, it's... These kinds of jokes are a reflection of the characters and the scenarios. It's not like one side's getting attacked more than the other. I find a film like Simran way more sexist, where it, it truly is more about the wife, but it ends up being about him. And it happened one night. Both sides are getting jabbed at. Both sides get their get their just desserts. You know, I think it's an even battleground. I, I think for me, is because it's so good and so well known. It's me trying to hold a bit of a higher standard to it and being a bit more nitpicky with it. I think if if the if the direction was any less or the performances were any less, I probably wouldn't notice it as much or uh, or sort of just knock it off as you know. Oh, that's those the those the times. But because I think it's so excellent, this is me trying to find a fault with it. And I can understand that. I think throughout the course of this entire project, because a lot of these are absolute classics, and we're going to get to stuff like you know Casablanca, The Godfather, uh, Two Parter, um, even something like Return of the King. Um, there are so many films I know I'm going to give ten out of ten to, and it's not because I'm really, I'm really willing to give these numbers away. I mean, we both really were hard on simmer and like i gave it a three you gave it a two i believe but i feel like i will sprinkle a few tens here and there and i will try and be like you where i do try and see okay this is considered a classic but what is it to me to me it happened when it was still a 10 out of 10 because the entire time i was glued and fixated to to my screen just seeing all of this wit and all of this chemistry. It's some of the best chemistry I've ever seen on film. And to me, I had no real massive problems with it. So I'm going to try and have the same kind of standards as you do. But I guess in this respect, the movie won me over just a little bit more. Oh, no, that, that's completely fair. And, you know, everything that you said, I do agree with. And, and you're totally right to feel that way. And, you know, we mentioned earlier about uh, Grand Hotel maybe not necessarily being a, a must-see for, for cinephiles. If you haven't seen it happen one night, you are you're behind and not understanding where great comedy comes from. Like, you need to see this film. It needs to be on your watch list. Yeah, while I have personal favorites like um, Mutiny and All Quiet, where I would personally recommend these, and even Wings to an extent, it happened one night. As you said, this is an academic film. You could argue the same with All Quiet on the Western Front, but this is like the absolute tree where all of the roots of screwball comedy has come from. This is where all of the water is provided to this big nurturing plant that sadly has died within recent years, apart from the few people trying to save these trees, you know, like Quentin Tarantino again. I'd even argue Wes Anderson to an extent. Um but Screwball as a whole is dead. So if you want to really see the old genre as it was and as it was born, it happened one night. I mean, the name of the film alone explains what, how Screwball comedy came to be. It just happened. And it happened with this film, an absolute classic. Sure.
of myself. Well, that was our top 10 of the first Best Picture winners. Now we want to do something a little bit fun. It's a little difficult when you're comparing films across genre, uh, decades and, and years and things like that. But, you know, since we're only doing 10 at a time, it's fairly easy to to look at those 10 and realize what was being done in a film at the time. So to make things a little bit interesting, every time we do one of these episodes, we're also going to talk about some of our favorites. So what we're going to be doing is giving out awards for best screenplay. It doesn't have to be original or adapted like it actually is at the Oscars, just best story. Best actor and actress, just because they'll be the mains. And then best picture overall. Obviously, with Best Picture overall, it's going to most likely be our one of our top picks. But, you know, sometimes we might not have the same consensus overall. So it still will be interesting to sort of talk about why these landed so highly for us. So the first award that we're going to give out is for Best Screenplay. Now, for me, I am giving it to The Life of Emile Zola. I just thought that it worked so well in telling a great story that was contemporary then even though it was taking place in the past and is still contemporary now in sort of the what role does the artist or um the media journalist play in connection with the government now i loved it more than you did but uh but do you have any other nice words to say about it I think it's a, as you were saying, it's relevant. It's very profound. It's a shame that it still stands up to this day with its message because we should, we could sure use it ourselves. But no, while you were a bigger fan of it than I was, I had very little problem with the actual screenplay. I thought it was a very solid one. And out of these picks, it seems like a pretty logical choice. Yeah, it had a pretty interesting story. Uh, you seemed a little confused at first because it went from greatest hits compilation to focusing on someone else, but it all sort of tied up nicely with some really good dialogue and a really good final courtroom scene where uh, Zola's convictions are put on display. So that's pretty interesting. Um and the performance done by Paul Mooney as Emile Zola was pretty great. Now, for you, you went slightly differently. Uh, both of us, even though um, we loved it, you loved it a bit more. Your best screenplay was for It Happened One Night. Tell me why. That is true. And I started off the episode or the the entry for It Happened One Night, rather, saying that I am a big fan of screwballs. And, and I am. I love screwballs because they have some of the best delivery and the best wittiest writing you could find because a lot of it is not just sarcasm but it's the writer kind of feeding to stereotypes whilst also mocking us for buying into them you know there's a lot of breaking the fourth wall that isn't very blatant there's a lot of heeding to and attack against stereotypes and character molds there's a lot of statements to say Character development happens through the way people talk with one another. The pacing is set by the dialogue. So with that in mind, um, it happened one night being one of the best screwball comedies. I think everyone can agree on that. It hits all the right notes there. I mean, everything, pretty much everyone, never mind just the leads have to say is really well done. But it's not just the dialogue. The pacing of the film itself was as complicated 
as the minds of the characters and it was as rapid fire as the words they deliver. It was a very smart, fast paced movie and it's mostly because of the screenplay. It's interesting because normally it's considered a bit of a insult when uh, you say you can see the beats of a film. I think this is the case of that's considered a compliment where you can really see the beats and every, every note sort of matters. Yeah. There are a few genres of movies where that's necessary. I would say in horror, you'd want a slow heart rate kind of pace with it, and you want it to be noticeable. In westerns, you want the the very slow pace, and then the big payoff. You know, you want to be jolted. And another one of the few genres where you want it to be apparent how fast or slow it's going. Well, in this case, it has to be fast. Is screwball, and of course, it happened one night. Rapid fire. Now. To continue this notion, we're going to lead into the best actress category, where for myself, I ended up giving it to Claudette Colbert, who plays Ellie Andrews in Again, It Happened One Night. To continue what I was saying before about the screenplay, you have this delivery that melts it so fast, and you have her quick reactions and her quick emotions, and Back then, when a lot of stuff was very theatrical on film, there's a big reason, again, why It Happened One Night won so many awards, because it felt like one of the truest films at that time. And Claudette, or Colbert's uh, performance is no, no laughing matter, and it's a perfect example of this, where it feels very modern, but also tongue-in-cheek of the time itself. It's, it's within the future of film, and at the same time, it's back enough that it's still making a comment on how women are portrayed in films, but what they can also be as well. And I think she nailed it with how tough as nails and difficult she was to deal with, but also how sympathetic you felt for her and how truly engaging she was once she began to let up. What do you think of that? Uh, I agree. In fact, I, I also give Claudette Colbert the best actress for me. Um, although it comes with a bit of an asterisk for me only because, uh, most of these films did not have a strong female lead. The ones that did have uh, a large female part, uh, they were some of the worst ones I watched. Cimarron, Broadway Melody, Cavalcade were all in the bottom three for me. Grand Hotel had some interesting performances, but none of the characters were really leads enough for me to, to give it away. Maybe Greta Garbo, um, Outside of that, you know, there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot to pick. And, and even if there was, Claudette Colbert definitely stands head and shoulders above the rest. Uh, one thing that I really liked about her was she right away is shown as someone with strong convictions and feelings. And then when she's sort of left on her own to survive, she needs these strong convictions in order to get by. Yeah, she's a bit of a aloof at times and can't take care of herself when it comes to spending money and things like that. But you know what? In the end, she's still able to take care of herself. If Clark Abel wasn't there for her, she might have still been able to make her trip. Yeah, it just depends on what adventure she would have taken. But no pun intended, it happened to be this adventure. And that's why it's so interesting. You're right, though. I believe she would have found a way with whatever oddball she bumped into, but the movie works perfectly well because she bumped into this one. But yeah, you don't feel like she's a damsel in distress at all. And I feel like that's something that really set her, as you said, above the rest back then. 
Now, when it comes to best actor, I think we all know who you're going to go with, right? You've got a huge amount of praise for, and I don't blame you at all, the great Siegfried himself, William Powell. Do you care to go more into this? Because I feel like you still have some things to say as to how complex this character was. Um, yeah, I... I... This was a bit of a tough one for me. There, there were a few other people that really stood out. Clark Gable, and it happened one night. Um, Paul Mooney in The Life of Emile Zola, and a couple other interesting ones, especially Mutiny on the Bounty. I almost gave it to Charles Lawton in that. Uh, but I still think Powell sort of stood out, and he always, he always had a smile on his face. He, even though life was extremely hard for him and, you know, he was, he had to make, I don't even know how to word this properly. Uh, he's someone who was always dealt the wrong hand in life. And yet you looked at it as an opportunity to turn it on its head and find a way to succeed. And it was almost a very inspiring performance. I don't normally look at films in that sort of light, but you watch that and you're like, well, yeah, of course, you know, with the right attitude and that can-do spirit, you can do anything you want in life. Uh, and that was something that Powell really did. And as he aged and actually had some pretty good makeup done with him as far as making his hair darker, making his face look a little bit older and weathered and things like that, every scene sort of came with a, a little bit more of a sense of tiredness that he's had the weight on it the weight of the world on his shoulders for so long and, you know, it's just slowly bringing him down. And even near the end when he's dying and can't even get out of his chair, you, you still see the life in him, even though that everything is conspiring against him to hold him down. Yeah. You raise a good point because this is what a good character does or a good portrayal rather, where you have somebody not just leading the film, but they're leading us as well. And, you know, it could be um, it could be something that they're facing against that they're losing or, or winning. But either way, we're along the entire ride because we believe in the character solely because of the performance. And as somebody who had everything against them, like Ziegfeld himself, you know, you're absolutely right. The fact that he didn't just sell his act to all these people who are walking past him. He sold it to us as well. And we were fortunate enough to buy into it yeah and i feel like some of the things that he did could have been construed as very jerkish the way he would um you know play tricks on uh his rival his business rival his name is blanking on me right now uh like the scene where he, he desperately asked to borrow you know five hundred dollars or however much money it is because he needs to get back to america and what he does is he uses that five hundred dollars to buy uh this performer that they're both trying to sign all the flowers in the world which was a pretty funny thing and it could have been construed as very mean and rude and jerkish but it comes off as like a little playful adversary thing because of his performance right i'm trying to look up to the name of um the other of the other person as well. Uh, someone I liked a lot too. Yeah, no, he was a good character. I loved that, that rivalry. Cause it was almost like a sibling rivalry where they hated each other at first, but they, you know, they pretended to like put up with one another just so they could get by in business. And the movie ends with them actually feeling respect for one another. Where it's like, they look at one another and they say, look, you had ups and downs, Ziegfeld. I was pretty constant. 
but you truly lived no matter if you're rich or you're poor. And I've got to respect that. And you see a mutual understanding of one another and how they both were in this industry together. It's really touching, actually. Yeah, the script, you know, faltered at times, but it always came through with the performances for me. Absolutely. Now, on my end, I've got to go with the obvious Clark Gable. And the not so obvious mutiny on the bounty. So I've got to like change things up a bit over here. Um, now, why do I feel that he deserved this on my end? Never mind the fact that he beat It Happened One Night, the movie he won for. It's what I was saying earlier. It feels like a very modern performance. It feels like this kind of archetype that we've seen so often now. But for back then, we watched all 10 of these films and there were many movies after mutiny on the bounty that we saw and you still don't really see a character like that again i've started the next batch of 10 already and i still haven't quite seen acting that's as into the future back then anyways as this one is you've got this really stern bold person and he doesn't just feel like this macho man who's got sex appeal to him despite the fact that he does have that in the movie you know he has a real rugged candid side to him where it all feels genuine it all feels like his anger comes from a real place his sense of heroism isn't just because he's this strapping man it's because he wants to truly fix everything because he's tired of the oppression everything feels so genuine and i don't think we're going to see this kind of a leadership role until we get into like the fifties, maybe I think it's still a long while from then to me, it just seems very into the future and just very bold. Actually. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I liked him quite a bit. I preferred Charles Lawson a bit more in that film. Yeah. Uh, but no, I definitely see what you're saying. He does give a very strong and interesting performance. Uh, that's both, you know, sensitive, but, headstrong but at the same time there's there's always a lot of things going on with his face where you can see he's thinking and plotting and wondering what's happening next and how is he going to get away with what with all a bit of a dash of uh mischievousness mischievousness going on yeah absolutely it's very nuanced which especially back then we're still evolving from the theatrical performances and you bring up Lawton, it's, as I said before, again, even he was very modern, so he was actually possibly a close second or third for me, you know, I had, uh, there were a lot of good options for um, for this batch anyways, and I still went with Clark Gable because he even went against the own type that he was set up as because, you know, we, we knew him for it happened one night, we're going to be introduced to him again in Gone with the Wind, you know, we're used to seeing him as like, as this hero because the movie sets him up as one almost. But in, in this, I don't feel like he's a poster boy. As you said, he feels very real. Everything feels like it's a genuine, heartfelt reaction and not just because he's the title boy of the, on the movie poster, you know, it, 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 it honestly blew me away. I've got to say that. And it's nice that they he could have he could have portrayed the part 
as someone that had too much dignity to kind of slum it around in, you know, the, the sailor's quarters and things like that and uh, do the hard work that it, that a sailor has to do. But he did all that, and he made it actually look believable. You, you kind of forget that it's this Hollywood persona, Clark Gable, and that's something that, that I sometimes have a, a problem with current actors, or no, sorry, movie stars. There's a difference between movie yeah. stars and actors, where actors refuse, where movie stars refuse to get dirty and play uh, the the underside of their characters. You don't see them as a real bad guy or have real uh, issues to deal with. Where it seemed like Clark Gable was actually sort of trying to portray these sort of things as a grimy, dirty sailor, even though he didn't come from that background. Right, but to be fair, I think that was only when that kind of lifestyle started. Well, we talked about Grand Hotel and Joan Crawford and Greta Garbo kind of being like that, but that was kind of an exception back then. You know, this kind of need for having stunt doubles, or not just for liability reasons, but um, the avoidance of doing anything that's actually gritty and difficult and just going for things that'll bring them, that'll push their name out more that kind of to evolve or that started to evolve rather a little bit later, I think. But even so Clark Gable was one of the first like real sex icons of that time. So even so it's, he, I, you know, it's a nice start that he got rid of that famous mustache of his, you know. So if that alone isn't a sign that he was fully prepared to go all in on this, never mind the fact that he did, then, yeah, of course, that's always respectable. Yeah. Um, now, pivoting from Clark Gable to something else, our best picture is Clark Gable's other one. It happened one night. Now, yes. this is probably something where we're not always going to end up agreeing on what we feel was the absolute best, but from this first 10, I don't think there is any doubt. This was a movie that I had seen before. I, um, in fact, it was the only one of the 10 that I had seen before. And I knew going in that it was probably going to end up being at the top or right at the top. And you, you hadn't seen it before. So it was kind of interesting when, uh, we were talking the day after you had watched it and you were just so completely blown away and you said, yep, I gave it a perfect 10. <laughs> yeah. And you know, again, I'm probably going to sprinkle a lot of tens across the board here because some of these are clearly the best pictures that are supposed to win. And I still stand by that rating. I think it's a terrific movie. And that's the interesting thing about this project because there are a lot of movies that we've clearly seen. There's a lot that we haven't. But when it gets to a point like this where I've seen something that you haven't or vice versa, like I saw a few that you haven't yet and you came up to me and I said, yeah, exactly. That's exactly how it is. Now, let me see if I still feel this way whenever you watch it. You know, um, What exactly were your expectations going into that film? To be honest, I only knew of its accolades and its praise. I didn't look into the story or anything at all. I mean... Um, again, I'm a fan of screwballs, but I still feel like I've got a lot to learn as well. It's just something that I'm a fan of and not necessarily fully, fully dwelled in, you know, like, um, film noir or neo-noir as well. Western psychological thrillers. Those I feel like, okay, I've dived in, I've soaked it all in. I get fully how these things work. Screwballs are something that I'm still getting myself into and well, clearly, because I hadn't even seen one of the blueprints of that genre yet. And 
I guess I expected, you know, the the wordplay, but I didn't know it was going to be that complicated plot wise. I didn't think it would have been like this tapestry that wove all these elements in and out of one another, where they almost like were like two ships sailing past each other, unless they just marginally collided. You know, um, I to be honest, I expected something a little bit safer, I guess, because of the time. But well. Color me stupid because that wasn't really that safe of a movie, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Um, I we've I know we've talked about it a lot, but I guess I'll just pivot and just say a funny moment. I still think it's pretty interesting that like uh, they had a few hotel scenes where, you know, they had to go and spend a night at a motel or whatever. They were hotel rooms meant for married couples, yet there were still two beds. <laughs> I just thought that was pretty funny that like obviously that's for hollywood purposes um, yeah but like that they tried to pass that off i just i just i don't know that's just a funny little anecdote that i wanted to bring up <laughs> well i i didn't actually notice that and well it makes perfect sense because if you know hitchcock got into a lot of trouble for flushing a toilet in the 60s on screen you know uh, clearly back in the 30s they still had issues of showing stuff on on the big screen right um no i actually didn't even notice that that's that is actually kind of bizarre now it's a five out of ten i'm kidding and that actually (laughs) that whole aspect of them having separate beds is probably the basis behind what or what one of the greatest scenes of the movie the whole walls of jericho scenes right so it's almost again the breaking of the fourth wall almost very slyly it's as if they knew they had this challenge. So it's like, how do we go past this? Oh, I know. Why don't we just block them entirely? You know, if they can't even share a bed, they can't even look at one another. And you know what? I think that's very sly, very yeah. sly, but clever. Mm-hmm. And then they actually repeat the gag again at the end where I don't want to get into too much, but it's it's sort of a bit of a payoff joke where, where they bring it up again after uh, they get together. As you know, all romantic comedies, they always end up together. even so it's still ambiguous because you don't know the finer details of the ending but you just know that well the walls of jericho (laughs) were broken down that's that's about it (laughs) um so that was pretty interesting i really enjoyed you know doing this we've got another seven more of these to go i believe uh going on our eighth once you know the the future best picture winners come out so uh one down are you still excited for this project? Well, I can't even begin to explain how excited I am for the next one. I, I mean, I, I might say this a lot, but I've looked clearly at the entire list as you have and probably a lot of people interested in, in movies have. But grouping them up in these 10, I've had a chance to kind of mix and match and say, OK, I know what the 50s are going to look like roughly or like the 60s and 70s. OK, I get what's there. This next one is super exciting, and it could be one of the best ones that we could have. And I'm not just saying that for promotional purposes. I mean, we've got some absolute stunners here. We have full-fledged classics like Alfred Hitchcock's first real thriller that got him on the board with Rebecca. You know, We have Billy Wilder's work with The Lost Weekend. You have an absolute classic that stands the test of time as being one of the best written, acted, directed, everything film, Casablanca. Then we finally have an interesting choice. It's a beloved movie, but 
we're both kind of not too excited to see it. And that's Gone with the Wind. Now, that one is definitely going to make for a good podcasting, or at least I hope. Uh, But to go along with all these great films that you just mentioned, that's going to be on our next Oscar podcast, our Best Picture podcast. Unfortunately, we do not have a firm date for the second one. That will just be somewhere down the line, hopefully in the next month or so. But uh, what else do we have in the pipeline? Now, for the very next podcast, we've got something very exciting we managed to actually go to the Toronto Screenwriting Conference. We saw some very good seminars, got some really cool things written down. We actually have an article up, which was co-written by Adriana Flergia. She did a fantastic job. You should check that out. But we also have some featured interviews that we're going to have on ContraZoom in our second episode, no less. Ooh, that'll be cool. Keep it as a surprise, but... Um... Yeah. I, I think that people are really going to enjoy that. Um, and that should hopefully be out not too much longer after this one is out. Um, because obviously all that legwork with the interviews and what have you were done before we recorded. Yeah. And just as a hint for one of the interviews, he's kind of a big deal. He's made some movies you've surely watched arguably complained about not being nominated for Best Picture for being the very best of its kind. And he's working on what could be the biggest blockbuster of next year. Would you say he's out of this world? <laughs> um, I, I guess, yes, as a hint, yes, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll leave uh, the lame jokes to the side. Anyways, I'd like to thank you all for listening. We really appreciate it. This is our very first episode of ContraZoom, and we hope to do many more for you all. We also want to give a very big shout-out thanks to Sean Chin, who is the owner and editor of Live in Limbo, who is graciously hosting our podcast, and also the original podcast, Capsule, which I assume you're still a part of as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to jump ship from Capsule, but... It's good to have both a music and a film podcast where we can really devote either or to what they're really capable of pushing or, or capable of doing rather, you know, so. It, it is very exciting and, and we hope that these two podcasts can live in harmony and we don't have to have some sort of battle royale where only one comes out alive because then your allegiances will be tested. Well, we're just going to have to combine them into um, capsule zoom, I guess. That sounds interesting to me. Also of note, um, music from this week's episode is from Starfall, a great Toronto band. Please check them out. There's going to be links in our show notes of where you can buy their music. Um, and if they have any upcoming shows, so, so you can follow along on their Twitter and Facebook and all those great things. Um, so please check out their music. We're going to be hopefully featuring... Uh, emerging artists for every every big episode that we do and hoping yes. to share some of our, our favorite up-and-coming music. Uh, and this is just one of the many bands that uh, we wish to bring to the masses. Yeah, that's going to be exciting because obviously each podcast needs music, but because this is film-based and I've tried to do the legalities here, it's highly difficult to get any film scores of any kind um, you had the great idea of using this opportunity to send out all this music from emerging artists, which I think is a fantastic idea. It's going to be great for us to check out, for all of you listening to check out, everyone involved. Free, awesome music. You know, it's just one of those things where I thought 
Live in Limbo is mostly a music-based website. We're going to be discussing film. Why not find some way to marry the two? And so we have these uh, mint musical interludes. So uh, other than that, where can everyone find you there, Andreas? Well, those interludes would have the great Zeke Field himself proud. You can find myself, the not-so-great Andreas, at Andreas Babs on Twitter. And you can find myself, hopefully uh, not completely ranting against the government and uh, muckraking, at DGAPA on Twitter, um, where you can also follow us on our official, official Twitter account, at ContraZoomPod. All of this is going to be in the show notes. So please give us a follow. Send us some love or some hate. Tell us what you think if you've seen any of those movies or ones that you're just interested to see. So until next time, thank you very much for listening.